Thanks. It's great to be here. That's the only one that's left. No, just um. <laughs> so Brad and I have been friends for years, and we wind up oftentimes late in the evening talking over FaceTime or Skype as you know we're unpacking our day and musing about ministry and life and friendship and family and stuff. And let me tell you, Brad paints a great picture of you, and you actually live up to it. You know, everybody, you're thinking he's just, everybody's making up, they have this great congregation, right? But you're actually, you're actually like what he talks about. <laughs> he's told me so many wonderful stories about what's going on here and the, the growth you're experiencing and just ex- expansion of vision. And so I only had one concern, uh, which I don't know how to share this or... He also talked to me about his golf game, and some of the numbers he's posting, I thought, gosh, I mean, there's got to be some accountability if there's this much going on, and he's shooting these kinds of numbers. I mean, the builder's got to do something. He's out there too much, you know, uh, <laughs> and his family's wonderful, so I'm thinking, I mean, they can't be getting the short trip. Somebody must be losing it, but then we played golf this week, so I want to tell you, I'm less concerned <laughs> after this week, and I was actually thinking that a real love gift could be like a second offering for golf lessons, <laughs> both for him and for me. Um, so it's interesting, Brad and I were talking, somebody asked us how we met a, couple, a few times, and we just were like, well, we met at a pub in some theology discussion group years ago. It's one of those kind of moments that wasn't planned. I mean, we, we, we didn't have some deep connection before that or anything. We knew a few mutual people. There's a story, I don't know how many of you guys uh, are fans of um, Tommy James. Uh, he wrote the story, I wrote the song, Moni Moni, right, which was covered, uh, it was written in the early 60s, right, but later was covered, of course, by Billy Idol. Great song, here she comes now. I'm not going to try to torture you anymore, but and then the Mo- Moni Moni, all that. So here's the interesting thing. He had the tune before he had the words, right? He had... He had the, the melody, and he tells the story this way. He says, he was, this was in an interview in 1995 in Hitch magazine. He says, true story, I had the track done before I had a title. I wanted something catchy like Sloopy or Boney Maroney, but everything sounded so stupid. <laughs> so Richie Cordell and I were writing it in New York City, and we were about to throw in the towel when I went out onto the terrace, looked up and saw the Mutual of New York Building, which has its initials illuminated in red at its top. I said, that's got to be it, Richie. Come on. Here, you got to see this. Come over. It's almost as if God himself said, here's the title. This is the best part of the story. He said, I always thought that if I had looked the other way, the song might have been called Hotel Taft. (laughs) But isn't life like that? One night you go to a discussion group, and all of a sudden you meet someone who becomes a friend and confidant for life. Maybe you go on that blind date that you're anxious about, and it winds up being the person you fall in love with and and build a family with. Maybe it's, gosh, I haven't been to church in years, and I don't know, but things are, my marriage feels like it's crumbling, or I'm insecure about finances and work, but there aren't really accidents in life, right? Part of it, this is part of the journey of faith that things happen for a reason. And sometimes it just matters where you look. And the beautiful thing (laughs) I love in this text we're about to read, we see this guy who shows up the same place every day. 
who's been, had a crippling disability that he was born with. And one day he just looks the right way. And he looks, and what he sees is he actually sees Jesus through um, a couple of the apostles, Peter and John. So I'll read the text, and then we'll talk briefly about a few things. It's a, it's a big text, so it's one of those things where uh, we can't cover every little thing about it. But there's so much here. Like, if you're, if you're relatively new here, or if you're, this is your first Sunday or something you're visiting, or if you're like, hey, you know, when Bible categories come up on Jeopardy, I get really nervous because I don't know anything. Uh, you're in good company. This is a great text because in some ways it's a text that you, we could look at a lot of the core things of all biblical faith. Uh, some of the key ones are right here, so we'll see that. Let me read it. This is um, Acts chapter 3. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in a three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day, he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then, walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized he was the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade, where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Peter saw this opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed, and you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped away. 
Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you, Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. The word of the Lord. Now, I want to talk about three things. Again, it's a long text, and I mean, we could spend most of our time on the sermon because it's really interesting. I mean, one, Brad and I have actually talked about this over the past few months as, we've, as I've been looking forward to visiting, that if you look at how if, it's funny that there's all these books on preaching out, you know, in Christian bookstores. I mean, you know, you've visited them, I'm sure. There's very few books that actually study the sermons in the book of Acts, the initial sermons, which are all over the map. I mean, some of them talk so explicitly about Jesus. Some of them, like Paul at Mars Hill, doesn't mention Jesus at all. Sometimes the cross is present. Sometimes the resurrection is They're so different. And we could spend so much time. But I want to just look a little bit first at the miracle. Because I think this text, and then how the sermon explains it, because I think through the whole complement of both the the miracle and the expounding of it in the sermon, I think we can learn three things. First, we can learn something really important about faith. Second, we can learn something really important about the future and the hope that's bound up with the future. And lastly, and maybe the most important thing, because I love this line when Peter is, is, I mean, you think, gosh, what a tough preacher, that first paragraph, right? Gosh, I mean, that congregation's never going to come back. But I love the, the, the sort of second paragraph in the sermon where he says, friends. He addresses the people who, he says, look, you gave up the Lord of glory <laughs> over to injustice, but you know what? I still call you friends. So the last thing I think we learned that's maybe the most important, which the other two hang on, is friendship, the nature of real friendship and what it means. So first, faith. It's interesting, I don't know like, uh, how many of you experience being regularly asked for money, like in urban areas. I, I, I lived in cities most of my adult life. Now I live in a, t- a tiny borough just outside of Philadelphia, but my wife and I spend a lot of time in the city. And one of the things that happens often in cities, for those of you who hang out in the Twin Cities and other places, and maybe this happens even here, this is a small kind of city, you get, there's panhandlers all the time. People asking you for money. And I love when Peter says, look at us. Because I often think, because of the crippling nature of consumer debt, of student debt, sometimes the person that they're asking for money might be poorer than the panhandler (laughs) when you add up their debts. It's interesting when somebody asks you for money. It's a vulnerable thing to do, right? It's a vulnerable thing. If you've ever had to ask somebody for money, to borrow money, to ask for it, it puts you in an incredible position of vulnerability, especially if you don't think you could pay it back. 
right? And real friends know, right, when you loan somebody money, if you want to be a, be a friend, you really have to expect that maybe you won't get it back. But this man every day is panhandling in front of the temple, and he just, again, it's like the money money thing. He looks the right way and asks the right people. They have this kind of strange response. But, but Peter says, I don't have money, but I'll give you what I do have. I've got Jesus. And then he's healed. Now, let me tell you, this is, this is a, a difficult uh, time, I think, and a great time to be a Christian. Just over the past few weeks, we've seen major controversies about race, about justice, about the symbols of our history, about human sexuality. And in every, in every age, there's always challenges and opportunities. So it's an exciting time, but sometimes a hard time. But what's really interesting is you think about miracles. A couple generations ago, before quantum mechanics and what we know about physics, a lot of people were skeptical because people thought, well, there's just fixed laws of nature, and, and miracles would contravene that. But now, if, if you know anything, which, or very little, which I know very little about physics because I slept through most science classes in high school, but if you know, now most physicists will tell us there really aren't hard and fast rules of nature, laws of nature. That we have all sorts, sorts of uh, micro-molecules and things and atoms that, that behave in really weird ways. And don't behave the same way even when we observe them. We change the, the Heisenberg principle. Right? We, the things change just by us observing them. So it's interesting. Although we're at a challenging time maybe for when we're thinking about ethics and values and how to bear witness in the world, what's interesting is a lot of intellectuals are, are more open to the miraculous than they've been in previous generations that anybody that's been a Christian for the past couple centuries would, 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 would have thought possible. So there's always challenges to, to our faith in every culture. And the, the big danger, every culture has problems with Jesus, right? Like in, in Philadelphia, I, you know, we're kind of a blue state metropolitan area, right? Everybody loves the John 8 Jesus, woman caught in adultery Jesus, non-judgmental Jesus, right? The Jesus that doesn't cast stones, the Jesus that doesn't ruffle feathers but embraces the sinner. Now, John 14, 6, Jesus, the, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that's tougher. But in a lot of the global south, where the church is growing the fastest, it's, it's not, John 14 is not a problem. They don't have a problem with absolute truth. The, their big problem is that how could Jesus, who's the, the Lord and giver of life, be so soft on adultery when, when our culture is traditional and based on family loyalty? So every, every culture finds some great things about Jesus and some things about Jesus that are, you know, and you wince a little bit. But the key thing is to, to not mistake um, your problems with Jesus for Jesus' real problems. That th think about things that your grandparents believed, that you, about science, about race, about marriage, about genitals, that you think are completely insane, <laughs> right? And you, would, and, they're, and you love them, but they're just, I mean, they're not things we would believe now, right? So, what, so if you're here and you're a person that's kind of questioning faith, maybe things like miracles, stories like this are a challenge. I just say as a caveat, maybe it's the Bible's teachings on human sexuality or wealth or something. Just don't think that those are, are, are maybe it, all of its real problems. And maybe something that you are so convinced is going to keep you from faith, your grandchildren are going to think it's absolutely absurd that anyone would believe it. So just have the courage to doubt your doubts, right? Doubt isn't the opposite of belief. Unbelief is the opposite of belief. So doubting is an honorable part of the Christian pilgrimage. But back to the miracle. That was a side. That would, don't, I'm not charging for that one. That was, a, that was a, just a caveat. 
Back to, back to faith. What's interesting is faith, what's, what's key about faith is not so much the subject. By subject, I mean you, right? Like the subject of the sentence. Do a little English grammar diagramming. You know, I go to the store. I'm the subject. I'm the person going to the store. It's not the subject. It's the object. It's what your faith is put in. Now, everybody's a person of faith, right? All my, I, 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 I sound, this sounds very cliche, but like some of my best friends are atheists, right? But that's true. Um, and when we talk, I always say, like, okay, you're just as much of a person of faith as I am. We just have a different object. What do you mean? Well, show me where universal human rights is under a microscope. I mean, you, all, you believe it, but you can't prove it, right? But it's something you don't think is dumb. Right? But, but it's something that is, it takes faith. We're all people of faith. The thing is not so much the quality of your faith or the, the subject, but the object. Now, here, this, usually we put faith in things that we think will get us through life. Right? Now, there's an old-fashioned but great word. It, it's got continued relevance. Idolatry, right? It's just a simple word. It's what the Bible calls when you put faith in the creation instead of the creator. So it's really easy, right? Creator, God, everything else, creation, right? Easy, easy dividing line. So creation, it could be sex, art, money, food, alcohol, uh, job security, status, whatever it is that you put your faith in, that's your God. There are lots of people outside the church who have fervent faith just in the wrong object. There are a lot of people in the church that have fervent faith Maybe in their own religiosity or their, or their own giving or their own attendance in Bible study. Those are all in the creation column. You can be an idolater inside the church or outside the church. But it's the object of faith. So what Peter does is he redirects his, this man's faith. He redirects his faith to Jesus. I love, I love when he says, I, I don't have that, but I'll give you what I do have. And the most precious thing, you see the object of Peter's faith. And again, Peter's a guy, that what's, what's, what's key for the life of faith, remember the object, not the subject. Peter's faith is up and down, up and down, up and down. Another caveat, for people that, when my skeptical friends say, like, the Bible is just some ideological track made by the followers of Jesus. So look, if I was writing an ideological track, I would make myself look better. <laughs> Take Peter's example, right? Like, I would have said, hey, let's clean that up. Let's say I didn't, let's say I'm Judas, uh, Denied him those three times. Let's just clean that. He's, he's not around. He's not going to protest. I mean, part, part of the thing that, that's comforting about the Bible is it's actually, it reads like something true. I mean, some people, I have a lot of people pray like, hey, let's become a New Testament church. Be careful. You could become the Corinthians, right? I mean, most of the early Christian community, the, 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 the thing that like makes the Bible seem so reliable to me is that it reads like real life. It's not a hagiography. It's not ideal portraits. But Peter's, the object of his faith is rock solid. It's the Lord Jesus. Now, anytime somebody says to you, this isn't a caveat. This will, this will include in the, in, the, in, the, in the base package. Anytime someone says to you, this isn't spiritual wisdom, it's practical wisdom. Anytime somebody says to you, I'd give anything to blank. Just forget what they're going to say, because the, the next sentence is going to be completely meaningless. Let's say, like, hey, I played golf with uh, this guy Al the other day, and he's a single-digit handicap. I'd give anything to play like Al. 
except what it would take. I'd just have to play more. I'd have to practice. I'd have to just, you know, I'd give anything to play the guitar like the worship leaders. Whatever. I'd give anything except, well, I'm not, I don't want to buy a guitar. I don't want to take the practice. So, but it's great. It's one of the most meaningless things anyone can say to anybody, right? But it's great because you feel good if you're the golfer or the guitar player. And I feel good because I praise you. And, and I say something completely meaningless. When, any, when anybody says, I'd become a Christian except, after the except is their God. I'd become a Christian except the Bible's teachings on sexuality are just, it's, I can't. I'd become a Christian except I can't get over the fact that there's one truth and one Lord. I'd give, I'd be a Christian except forgive your enemies. I mean, I'm a child of abandonment and abuse. How am I going to do that? I can't even forgive my parents, let alone my enemies. Anytime they just, I accept that it's the equivalent spiritually of saying, I give anything to. And that's where you know, um, the, that's where you know where the God is. So what, what happens here to this man is that his object is redirected, the object of his faith to the Lord Jesus. So that's the faith, right? The next two points will be much shorter, I promise. But what it, what, the key to the faith is also the future, Key to the faith is also the future. It's interesting. There's a parallel kind of story to this in in Luke. I think it's the fourth chapter where Jesus says something very different than Peter, right? Jesus says to a guy who also can't walk, he says, your sins are forgiven, but that you might know this, get up and walk. Here, Peter says, I'm giving you Jesus, get up and walk. Then the man walks, dances, and worships like a forgiven person. One of the things that when, when, when you have the right object of faith, right, one of the things you have to learn, though, is that as the, the subjects of faith, our journeys are all so different. And this is part of the hard trusting of, of the pilgrimage of faith, right? St. Augustine, one of my favorite theologians, says that we believe in order to understand we don't understand first. Now, that, he, now this guy was the guy that wrote, oh, I forget what I read the other day. He wrote several million, I think he's the person that in Western culture wrote the most words. Thomas Aquinas quotes Augustine 2,286 times in the Summa and never disagrees with him. What a record, right? But, so Augustine was not an anti-intellectual at all. But he was a guy that says that, that basically understanding comes after faith. You don't like sort of get God down to the level of human understanding. But once God brings you up to the level of his, you, then it illumines everything, right? And you, and you really can become a true intellectual because you see things in the proper light, right? The, the best disinfectant is always sunlight. So, so, the, the, but so why, does, why does this person get to walk first and then experience forgiveness? Why does the other person experience forgiveness? And what about people who seem to be, to never walk again. There's a movie I love. I love, now some of you probably know it, okay? I wasn't, I didn't grow up like super churchy kind of home, but somehow I saw this film and I, I loved it. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest, I cry every time I see it. And I've seen the movie like 16 times at least. It's called The Robe. And it's with Richard Burton. And it's, it was a very popular novel in the early 20th century, and they made it into like one of these 50s great epic overacting Hollywood films. It's great. And despite the 50s overacting, I still cry. I, if you haven't seen it, run, don't walk to the, well, you don't go to the video store anymore. Uh, Netflix, you, you can just walk to your keyboard and download it. But this, so this guy is a centurion, and he's, at the, he's the guy that, it's a fictional, historical fiction kind of thing, that he's allegedly the guy that 
is presiding over the crucifixion. And he, get, he wins the robe. And he gets psychologically damaged because he sees thunder and the blood dripping down. And, and he goes crazy. And he goes back to Rome because his father's a senator. And getting assigned to, to the Middle East for a military excursion then was as dangerous as it is now. So his father really wanted him back from Palestine, which was like the worst, they, they described as like the worst place to be stationed in the empire. He comes back and he's crazy. So the emperor has pity on him because the emperor's niece is in love with him. And he's, and also self-interested, he wants the names of all these Christians. So he goes undercover as, as a merchant of textiles. And he's trying to figure out who these Christians are. And Maybe he can find the robe, because if he finds this robe, he won't be bewitched anymore. Well, there's one scene, he goes to Cana, and he meets all these people, and it's so wonderful. I mean, when you hear, when you think of those songs, like, they'll know we are Christians by our love, it's, it's Hollywood-esque, but the way these people in Cana, and this fictional account, love each other, they really look like Christians. And you can see he's struggling, because it's melting his heart. And there's this woman who sings at their worship services, and she's beautiful, but she can't walk. And he, the, the, the uh, Tribune Gallio winds up talking with her. And he's, she's talking about all the miracles Jesus did. And he says, well, if he was a king, why, did, why, can't, why can't you walk? You sit here as a cripple, and yet you sing and you praise him as a king. She said, yes, I thought long and hard on that. And if I could walk, it'd be natural for me to sing like I do and smile. But I know he left me this way because I can praise him much differently. Miracles are not a subversion of the laws of nature. They're actually the fulfillment of nature. Because what Peter talks about this time when Christ will return, right? And that's the whole hope of the Bible in both Testaments, that God will will shoot through creation with his glory and his grace and all things will be healed and there'll be no more people that can't walk, no more people that can't laugh, no more people that can't dance, no more people that struggle with the darkness of depression that seems to never end. That's the hope. But all miracles, and faith is a miracle, as big as, 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 as healing a physical illness, every time someone believes it's a miracle like the resurrection of the virgin birth because God gives it. It's, 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 and it's always a down payment. Right? There's a great word in the New Testament, Arabon. Paul uses it a lot for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the Arabon, the down payment. Now, if you're making cabinets or, you know, or something like that, and I, you know, I'm going to hire you to get high-end woodwork, I might give you a down payment, right? That's not the whole sum, but you can really spend it. You could take it down to Taco Joe's or whatever and get a bunch of cheap tacos, which I hear are worse than Taco Bell, but I hope to sample and see. But right, when you have a down payment, you can really spend it, but there's more to come. When people experience healing, I'll tell you what happened to this guy that walked. It was tragic. He died. Yeah, there's only one person that was resurrected. That's Jesus. Because resurrection is to be raised to die no more. Lazarus was just resuscitated, right? The guy, he, Jesus heals in John 11. He died. My wife is an ER um, nurse practitioner, right? She's resuscitated people. I mean, not three days. I mean, she's not that good, but she's good. <laughs> all fate, all healing, all of God's work is a down payment 
on the future where everyone will walk. There'll be no more crying, no more dying. So what, it's interesting. Jesus came, and you see it here in Peter's preaching. Jesus came preaching something very different than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a typical first century apocalyptic Jew. Not a bad guy, just a guy of his time. John the Baptist's gospel was, not yet, but soon. The kingdom's not yet, but it's around the corner. And there were lots of other first century Jews that preached something like this. Get, get your act together, because it's coming soon. Jesus changed it to already, not yet. The kingdom's here, but it's also coming. So this is, where the, the, this is I think, some of the best stuff of the, of the Christian faith, when it really works well. I mean, when it really gets in your heart and sinks into your relationships and your own heart and your own psychology and your own prayer life. You realize that what Martin Luther said, that we are simo justus et peccator, that's fancy Latin for at the same time a sinner and a saint. That, we're, that, we're, that we're, we experience deliverance in some areas, and some areas it's like one step forward, two steps back. What's great about that is it keeps us humble and hopeful, right? Because if you, couldn't be a, if you could be a Christian, who couldn't, right? <laughs> and if some of your compulsions can see a little bit of progress, it also make you way more patient, right? If there's anything about God that is so probably different than us, it's divine patience. So the future is key, right? This faith that we see in the miracle, it reveals that the real miracle is in the future. But this is a down payment. It's a real down payment. And some of us, the problem with being a creature and not the creator, like one of the, I think the keys to all spiritual life is learning to love your limits, which is really hard. From Adam and Eve on, it's a really hard thing, right? Because Paul says when the, when the law pops up, what do we want to do? Yeah, if there's a sign, I didn't walk on the grass out here. If there had been a sign, keep off the grass, the first thing I would have wanted to do is walk on it, right? That's just nature. When somebody else is healed in a way, you wish you could be healed. Like you, you, you get bitter and angry. But the, thing, the key thing is we're all witnesses in our readiness. And we're all longing in our not yetness. Because some people, this is again like one of those things where your preconditions, well, if God would just heal me and I could walk, then I believe. Well, there's lots of people that walk and don't believe, right? I see them all the time in Philadelphia. So it's, it's always the next thing. And last thing, lastly, and we'll wrap up quickly. I promise the points are going to get shorter as we go. The last thing that Peter talks about, the friendship of God, he says to these people that have betrayed God, which is all of us, right? All of us are betrayers of God. He said, you're friends. Jesus says in John 15, I've, I, I treat you not as servants, but as friends, right? Um, James says that Abraham was a friend of God. That's what the whole Bible is about. The covenant, God with us. God wanting to befriend human beings. God, there's nothing higher than God in his humility. That he wants to be our friend. Friendship is a beautiful thing, right? But it's costly. You know what's interesting about the miracle stories in the Bible? If I were, why don't, people say like the Bible reads like some ancient Near Eastern myth or something. It doesn't. Why don't Jesus, if I had miraculous powers, I would do stuff like Green Lantern, right? I, I would make a magic hammer and I write my name in skylights. It's, that never happens, right? The miracles are always to show, to bear witness to a greater truth, this future where we can really have an eternal friendship with God. You know what's also interesting about the miracles? They always cost something. What happens to Peter and John next? They get, they get put before the Sanhedrin, before the temple court. What happens when Jesus raises Lazarus? When he called Lazarus out of the grave, the Sanhedrin plots to put him in the grave. When Jesus, when the woman who has the chronic blood issue touches Jesus, something came out of me, right? When Jesus heals the first leper in Mark, he says, don't tell anybody, which of course, 
I don't know why he would say that, because of course they're going to tell everybody. And it said that Jesus um, could no longer go to the city. He had to stay in the desolate place. The leper was trapped in the, in the desolate place. Now Jesus took the place of the leper. Friendship is all about one-way love. Real friends, real friends love you for the already and the not yet. And real, the best friendships bear witness to the eternal patience and friendship of God, which is what everybody wants. What everybody wants. I want to read a quotation for you and then close with a story, then I'm done, I promise. It's from a guy named Frank Lake. And this is one of my favorite thinkers. He's a, he was a Christian psychiatrist that was very prominent in the 60s. And um, Lake says this. The natural man in us tends to reject the paradox that mental pain and spiritual joy can exist together in us without diminishing either the agony of the one or the glory of the other. The whole personality may be afflicted by a sense of weakness, emptiness, and pointlessness without diminishing in the least our spiritual power and effectiveness. This is possible because Christ is alive to reenact the mystery of his suffering and glory in us. So far as our own subjective feelings are concerned, any inner-directed questioning of our basic human state may produce the same dismal answer as before. The cupboard is bare. While we regard our humanity as a container, which ought to have something good in it, when we look inside, we miss the whole point of the paradox. We are not meant to be self-contained, but channels of the life and energy of God himself. And this is my favorite point. This is what brings it home. From this point of view, our wisdom is to let the bottom be knocked out of our humanity, which will ruin it as a container at the same time as it turns it into a satisfactory channel. I mean, that's so courageous, right? But it's so hard to do. It's so, we, want to, we want to be a container and show everybody our success and our togetherness and our righteous work. We don't want to feel like broken, needy people most of the time, right? We avoid needy people. Like, you know, you're going to complicate my life. God seems to be drawn to the neediest. There's a story I heard a few weeks ago from a friend um, about a pastor who's a friend of a friend. And... <clears throat> He lived in Chicago, and he had a wonderful family, several children, including his oldest son, who, when he was a senior in high school, got heavy into the drug scene in Chicago. And by the time he was about 19 or 20, he left home, and the family would not see him for months at a time, and when they saw him, he was usually strung out. Well, the pastor gets a call at four in the morning. Your son's here. He got a DUI. We need you to come pick him up at the precinct. Okay, well, it's so stressed. I mean, you know, Pastor Sunday, it's a busy day, right? And then it's your child that, that you haven't seen. And what kind of, what, what kind of, how much is this going to be a mess for our family? So he goes to the precinct, and the police say, we don't know what you're talking about. So he goes to the next precinct. We don't know what you're talking about. Goes to one more. Don't know what you're talking about. He's perplexed. So he goes to this burned-out row home where he knew some of the drug friends that he got involved with would hang out and were squatting. He goes, and he finds them all strung out, and he sees his son in a daze. He doesn't even know if he can, is conscious. His eyes are open, he's in a daze. He didn't know what to do, so he kissed his son and left. Just kissed him and went to church. Four months later, the son turned up. And then again, four weeks after that, then three weeks after that, and all of a sudden, over the next year, he was reintegrated into the family. So his father, and he was sitting, and his father says, what happened? How did this happen? This is the answer to my prayers. Just, what happened? He said, Dad, don't you remember? We were playing a prank. My friends thought it would be so funny to have you running around looking for me while you're trying to finish your sermon or whatever you're doing. I have to open up the church. They knew I was stressed. 
and they got a big kick out of it. So it was just, and when you came in and found me, I never knew you knew that, that, that house and where it was. You came in, I thought you were going to kick me, and you kissed me. And that kiss was what brought me back. I think what Peter is saying here is the faith that really is offered. A lot of people say, hey, I want a watertight argument for Christianity. There's not a watertight argument. There's a watertight person, Jesus the Lord. And with him, with faith in him, you have a future that is never ending. Because as Peter said to those who are wayward sinners, Jesus is the kiss of God, our Father. Amen. Oh, I'll pr- we, should, we should pray. God, thank you for kissing us. Um, for those of us who've experienced that kiss, uh, we pray that we'd come back to you again and again as our first love. And for those who don't, um, we pray that they take a chance on your smiling face and countenance, that they could know what it means to be kissed by God in and through your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, uh... As we walk into communion, I know we're, we're going a few minutes over, but I think sometimes sitting in the gospel and sitting in grace and sitting in what Jesus did is a beautiful, beautiful thing worth waiting around for. And uh, if you've not been to Cross You before, the way we take communion, first of all, it's for anyone who is trusting Jesus. You don't have to be Covenant, Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist, Methodist. Um, we don't care. We care that you are trusting and following Jesus Christ. And um, the way it'll happen is the band will start playing a song. And when you're ready, you can get up, come forward, and there will be a couple of people uh, standing there. And you'll take a piece of bread, and they'll say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And you'll dip it in the juice, and they'll say, this is the blood of Christ that has been shed for the forgiveness of sins. And in doing that, we remember, and we are filled again so that we can pour out just as Jesus poured out for us. I'm going to ask you to take a moment of silence as the servers come forward and uh, confess what you need to to a God who wants to forgive and wants to love you.